Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Happy Halloween, everyone. Yeah. Welcome to History and Film. And it's kind of become a little bit of a tradition, which is funny. I'm not a big Halloween person. I don't like scary movies. But since uh, the first season, I kind of didn't do it. But every season since... It's kind of worked out either with our timeline or in some way we kind of are able to fit a movie with Halloween and we're done with the initial timeline. So the tournament we're in the middle of right now doesn't really lend itself to doing a Halloween episode. So kind of like we did with the last duel, we wanted to throw out a bonus episode that we could just throw back into our overall timeline of world history that we could somehow relate to Halloween. And this week is going to be... Benicio, oh, not Benicio. <laughs> Guillermo, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. And then I, had a, I did have a couple more notes before we get to Pan's Labyrinth here. Uh, one, a this is a comment we got on Reddit when I post the episodes on Reddit. And I was posting the episode about Empress Matilda and Isabella of France in our tournament. Okay. And a Redditor commented, oh, Definitely got to throw an Eleanor Aquitaine in that tournament as well. And again, so someone I don't know if he's listening or anything like we that. We almost did. Yeah, we definitely we definitely talked about her, and and I almost wonder if we if we missed the if missed the boat a little bit because you you could make an argument that Eleanor Aquitaine is kind of Matilda plus Isabella because she has a lot of the Matilda stuff, and that she had a previous marriage and lots of land and property that she brings to the marriage when she marries Henry II, but then also she later rebels against him also. So she kind of, she's almost, in some ways, Matilda plus Isabella. I'm not saying we made the wrong choice, yeah. but Eleanor Rockwitane definitely could have just as easily been on our tournament and a major player like those women were. Yeah, she, we probably could have replaced Queen Elizabeth I. Um, ah! <laughs> No, <laughs> let's not be crazy. <laughs> and uh, another random note. So as often as we talk about all our Game of Thrones comparisons, one I'm surprised that didn't come up when we were talking about Puyi recently was Joffrey Baratheon. Because it seems like an obvious comparison as far as the, the spoiled brat guy. But we, the whole time we were talking about oh, Puyi, yeah. Puyi, we never said, oh, well, obviously, then he's Joffrey. And... <laughs> I think that kind of fits perfectly. Think about him make, making the making the Unix drink ink and all that stuff. Yeah, and I've 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 made the Joffrey Baratheon comparison before to other like little petulant monster rulers. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm so I'm surprised it didn't come up during our Puyi discussion. I will say, so we you talked about how we're doing, you know, a spooky movie because it's it is spooky season and it's we have done. I'm trying to think. We did we did Zodiac last Halloween. Yep. That was last Halloween. And then Halloween before that was... Time After Time. Time After Time, which was a Jack the Ripper movie. And then before that was... Uh, was that Vlad Tepes? Vlad Tepes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what was the first Halloween movie? Well, I, was was... That, I, think, that's the, I think that's the four. Because my first season, I didn't do one. Then Vlad Tepes. Oh, okay. All right. Then Time After Time. Then Zodiac. And now this one. Yep, yep. Gotcha. So for, for all the listeners out there, I, I know that Rich is not a big uh, horror guy, but... 
for our listeners that appreciate horror films, I I will do my best to advocate for the inclusion of more scary movies in uh, in our timeline. Oh man, I, 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 it's, uh, I guess we could talk about a movie I haven't seen. If you just want to talk about it, <laughs> yeah. Even in Pan's Labyrinth, here, there's I was like there's like scenes where I'm like like when he has, when he's like stitching himself his own cheek up, I'm like ah, like I can't even look at that. And that's not even like scary movie oh, stuff. That's see, just like violence. So stuff. that's interesting. I I thought that you weren't a fan of horror movies because it was like the story stuff didn't appeal to you as much because they're usually not very heavy on the story stuff. It's more of just oh, like, it's it's both. It's it's all of it. It's all of it. I just don't like. It. Okay, but you you also don't like the gore and the actual scary stuff either. Oh right, yeah. I don't like scary movies about. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. I don't like the stories. I don't like being scared. I don't like the violence. I just don't get the appeal <laughs> to scary movies. Now uh, that said, Pan's Labyrinth is is gorgeous and a great film, and I can definitely appreciate that. So I do watch. I do watch some, but this is all anyway. Well. Uh, my one last note here, I got an email, <laughs> random email, I don't know how all this stuff works, where they're pulling this stuff from, but it was like almost like a spam email from podstatus.com, and it was okay. giving us the good news that our podcast now ranks number 150 in educational podcasts in the Netherlands. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to give a shout out to all our Dutch listeners or the Dutch listeners that it took to be number 150 in education, specifically in the Netherlands, but cheers. <laughs> okay, so yes, today's film is the 2006 film Pan's Labyrinth, a Spanish language film directed by Guillermo, not Benicio del Toro. <laughs> so this is a... Uh... A movie is set in Spain in 1944, which is five years after the close of the Spanish Civil War. So this is during what's known as the Francoist Spain period, during which there was a fascist dictatorship in Spain. The main character is a little girl named Ophelia, and she travels with her pregnant and sick mother. They're going to meet... Her mother's new husband and the father of her mother's new baby, who is named... Vidal. Captain Vidal. And uh, Captain Vidal doesn't like Ophelia very much. And uh, when they're on the road, she sees this kind of uh, stick bug type creature that she thinks is a fairy. And uh, ends up finding, when they get to their destination, ends up finding out that it is an actual fairy. Um, and she finds this maze labyrinth on the grounds where they're living. And uh, she meets a fawn, a giant fawn, that tells her that she needs to complete these three quests. And so the movie is basically the story of her completing these quests to try and prove herself as the the lost princess of the, uh, it's like the underworld realm, or I forget what the actual name is that they call it. And then all of this is taking place with the uh, struggle between like Republican rebels and the Francoist fascist soldiers um, fighting each other at that time. Yes. So the film itself does not include specific historical characters, but it is set right. in a specific historical time. So I wanted to real quickly give the background leading up to this time in Spain to kind of give the full context of when the film is set here. 
So, because the Spanish Civil War is something I had not done a lot of research in before. And when I have researched it, it just seems so overwhelming. So I've tried to condense that down into a way that just makes sense. Because at the end of the day, there's so many factions at play during the Spanish Civil War that it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to summarize without just kind of rounding some stuff together. I think that... <laughs> In the United States, our Civil War is pretty cut and dried as far as, like, who's on what side and what they're fighting for. Right. And so I think that because, you know, because we go through our history classes growing up learning about our Civil War, that when we hear, like, oh, the Russian Civil War or the Spanish Civil War, we think, oh, it's probably something pretty similar, pretty similarly simple and cut and dried with simple this side has this leader and this side has this leader and they're fighting for this reason but it's it's like very rarely that way in other civil wars i think actually the united states is probably more of an outlier for it being as simple as it is oh that's probably true and uh, i could think maybe the spanish you could almost compare again not that i want to hint at the possibilities of a civil civil war in the united states here but if you as far as the factions involved if you're going to proxy the current United States thing onto the Spanish Civil War, it'd be like if instead of left versus right or liberal versus conservative, you have multiple factions. One faction is the MAGA faction. One faction is the evangelicals. One faction is the PC far left, you know, pronoun police. One is the moderate liberals. One is the never Trump conservatives and like all and even, you know, right. and, and keep adding to that list. And then that's kind of yes. how many different factions were all passionate about their own beliefs and kind of separate from the others during the Spanish Civil War. But right. So a little, little more context. Basically, uh, Spain, Spain had been an empire, obviously colonizing the New World and had colonies throughout the world. Uh, and they were a monarchy. Obviously, it was Ferdinand and Isabella that, you know, gave the money for Columbus to go on his mission that kind of opened up Europe to uh, this new world of resources and people who already lived there. And he definitely didn't discover anything. Um, but during the 19th century, opposition to the monarchy was growing and Spain was less and less comfortable with having a monarchy. They were losing that empire, you know, wars with, you know, the United States and, and things like that could just kind of help the, the empire was basically gone. So they had this vast worldwide empire that by the end of the 19th century, they do not have anymore. And the country is just weaker than it's been in a long time. And then in the 1920s, the king starts a war against Morocco that didn't go well, and the civilians and the army all hate the king. And so in 1931, the king of Spain just flees the country because he realizes his role is no longer needed and he's probably going to get overthrown or killed if he doesn't get out of the country. So he leaves the country and a republic fills the void, promising Big, big changes. We're, we're going to get, you know, we're going to go away from the monarchy and the things, the way things were in the past and hit reset and have a whole new Spain. And uh, immediately a big conflict with the right who doesn't want these big changes. They, I mean, they're fine with maybe the king being gone, but they don't want big fundamental changes to society. So that's the right wing. And then on the left, they feel like change is far too slow and the changes that they are promised and on board with are happening too slow. So basically everyone's angry because the right is mad that all these changes are happening and the left is mad that all these changes are happening far too slowly. So no one is happy in Spain. 
uh, and then the extremes of each side just keep getting more and more extreme. And at one point, the left just boycotts an election. Just says like, well, this is this this whole situation is screwed. We're not even going to participate in the election. So then, of course, then the right wins the election and tries to you know crack down on keeping things more the same and, and not not with these big change. The left in 1934 revolts a little bit, but then the right smashes that resistance with the help of one General Franco, who will come back here again later. The left realizes, okay, this is a mess. We have to unite together all the little fractured groups of the left, you know, the communists, the socialists, the Republicans in the term, but people who want the republic to exist need to realize they need to get together and they do so and are able to win the the election in 1936 and the left takes power. Meanwhile, the right, of course, is stoking fears about Jewish conspiracies to help spread communism. And the, I don't know if it's Falange Party is formed. I think that's how you say it. it basically, the fascist party in Spain is formed on the yeah. right. And politics in Spain has become violently divisive. So in 1936, the left does win an election after boycotting it the last time around. But immediately, the right doesn't accept this and starts planning a coup and starts assassinating people but at the same time some of their leaders are being arrested by the left so and then you get the situation too where things again things are just kind of violently extreme politically um and then the left who's in power doesn't want to start arming the masses because like that kind of proves that we don't have any control if we're if we're arming the citizens well that proves that we as the government don't have any control but the people are like yeah you don't have any control so they start arming themselves and then the coup begins the right the right with franco starting in morocco starts overthrowing the government with a, like a military coup led by the right. And now civil war is on between the right-wing nationalists and the left-wing Republicans, which, again, sounds silly in the United States, but it just means people on the left who wanted to have a republic. Yeah. And so, yeah, everyone's in on the fight now. The battle lines are drawn. And at the end of the day, the left sees it as tyranny versus freedom. We're either going to get to live our lives as we want to, or we're going to succumb to this fascist control of our country. But then the right sees it as righteous Christians versus the godless communists. Yes, and that's it speaks to how many, like, there were two sides in the Civil War, but people's reasons for being on yes. which side they were on differed a lot. So, like, yes. it was like, some people saw it as, well, I like communism, and the fascists are fascist and so i am going to be on the side of the republicans because i don't like fascism some people are like well i think that the catholic church is just the best thing ever and so i'm gonna fight with the nationalists because i'm on the side of the catholics even though you're not a fascist or wouldn't think yourself as a fascist right 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 which is where you get the kind of like the like there's bad stuff happened on on both sides during yes. this like war crimes were occurring on both yes. sides. Like it was bad for everybody. I wrote everybody sucks here on my notes. Yes, yes. 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 <laughs> for sure. Because like the, the left so like the left was so extreme with wanting to change, they were destroying all remnants of the past. Like and they were killing priests. Right. So like they wanted so yes. much to move on that they were yeah killing priests and destroying churches. But then the right is basically just killing right. anyone who disagrees with their agenda. And so yeah I wrote every, right. everybody sucks here. And uh, the left is more divided. I mean, Franco has a firmer control on the right. Again, all this is uh, leading into World War II. Now, Spain remains neutral during World War II, but the Nazis are now in power. So the Nazis start helping the right and Franco because they have similar ideologies. And meanwhile, the left is split because they have such a wide group. Everywhere from just 
moderate Republicans who just kind of like want normal order of society and a few changes to complete anarchists who just want everything to be kind of completely undone. So yes, Franco successfully unites the right while the left is struggling to unify. And basically the rest of the world picks a side and joins in. You know, kind of a, it's almost like kind of like a Vietnam being a proxy war. Mm-hmm. You kind of have that with the Spanish Civil War and different countries will kind of join or not join because Britain and France notably stay out of it because it falls under the appeasement of Hitler and everybody at the time. So they don't want to make anybody mad. So they stay out of it. But this also gets to where you have, say, Hemingway's farewell or for whom the bell tolls is set during this time when his character, Robert Jordan, yeah. joins the left as they're kind of trying to hold off the Francoist forces that are, I mean, having more success. Because obviously, you know, no surprise, 1939, Franco claims victory. Now the fighting continues, but you now do have the left is out of power. Franco's fascist regime has taken over. And they, even though the fighting keeps uh, keeps going, he's basically now a dictator. The monarchy is, quote, restored with Franco named regent for life. So it's a puppet monarchy with Franco in charge as dictator. And of course, frustratingly, the U.S., oh, well, we're strong. we were strong supporters of Franco because he was anti-communist. And we were more concerned about mm-hmm. the communist scare than we were about allowing fascist regimes to exist. And this is hardly the last time that that happens either. Like, oh, right. The American government, you know, backed uh, the... Pinochet regime in Chile after in the 70s. And that was a pretty out and out fascist regime that overthrew a democratically elected socialist. But because they thought that socialism and communism was good, America said, well, I mean, fascism isn't great, but it's better than communism. (laughs) Yeah, same with Iran and stuff like that. I mean, that was made less communist based, but just definitely in our own interest. So yeah, when Franco declared victory in 1939, like you said, that was five years before the start of the film. So again, when we see these kind of guerrilla fighters in the film, those are the remnants of people still trying to fight the Franco regime, even though the war is over, as it says. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a group called the Spanish Maquis, who are basically Republicans in France, continuing to fight the fascists kind of well in, into the 60s. Although kind of by 1952, Franco had put down most of that resistance. And actually, the height of the guerrilla resistance was 1945 to 1947. So right after Pan's Labyrinth, things kind of heightened or ramped up uh, in their fight against uh, Franco. And a lot of these people did kind of get folded into La Resistance against uh, Hitler and stuff in the rest of Europe. It's definitely that same kind of yeah. sentiment, that fight against fascism. But they were, they were in pockets kind of all over Spain as Franco is playing whack-a-mole. So again, what we see in the film as the the girl's, uh, Ophelia's stepfather being this general who's kind of, you know, on the hunt for these Maquis resistance fighters, that's, while not specific characters, it's very accurate to what was going on in Spain at the time and trying to put down all these little resistance pockets so that's why we wanted to talk about it and felt it was appropriate to talk about in this podcast as a historic film yeah i saw um speaking about the world war ii stuff in the uh i watched a video from the youtube channel history matters about the spanish civil war well and about just a francoist spain in general 
and they said that during World War II, they wanted to remain neutral, but they did entertain the possibility of supporting the Nazis because, you know, Franco was a fascist and so was Hitler. But I guess it, it never materialized, not because they were like ideologically that different from each other, but because Hitler wanted to like move a bunch of troops and stuff through Spain to get to Gibraltar yeah. for his North Africa campaign. And Franco said, okay, but I want you to provide all the equipment and also pay for it. Okay. And that was like a, that was like a, a bridge. Like it was too uh, big of a demand for Hitler. So they ended up not doing that. But then actually, I guess towards the end of the war, when it looked like Germany wasn't going to lose, Spain provided what they called passive support for the allies. So I think that just means that they are like, oh, well, we're not going to stand in your way. Post D-Day when they started to realize which way the wind was blowing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that I learned from that video, which I thought was interesting that I didn't know before, was that George Orwell fought during the Spanish Civil War. Oh, I think I did run across that as well. Yeah, yeah, that surprised me. Which I've learned like more about him in the last year or so, just kind of like not really on purpose, but like <laughs> he was uh, before he before he was a writer. Well, he's kind of a writer for his whole life, but before he you know wrote like 1984, the books that he was famous for, he yeah fought in the Spanish Civil War, which I didn't know. And before that, he was a police officer in British controlled India. Or no, Myanmar. No, India. I don't know. One of those. He was in a British colony as okay. a police officer and like wrote about it. And I was like, "That's this dude is super interesting. And I just never knew any of this stuff about him other than that he wrote 1984. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is interesting. And uh, not to jump from an actual person to a fictional character, but in Casablanca, they talk about Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick, having fought on the side of the left in in spain and that kind of times out yeah you think about that being that movie being set in 1941 and that would have just been two years after franco had won so probably in the in somewhere in that 36 to 39 range rick from casablanca or would have been uh fighting in this conflict as well yeah i i just i just looked it up it it was burma is where george was okay uh, okay a police officer he's a british a british police officer in burma that's interesting, yeah, because it makes you think, like, man, where's the uh, where's the George Orwell biopic, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and he uh, he wrote a short story about his time there called I think it's just called Shooting the Elephant hmm. that I read in one of um, in a history class I took last semester. It's actually it's it's pretty good. The guy's you know he's a pretty good writer, George Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's he's going places. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was a Halloween episode. We would say like, unfortunately, he is not, or unfortunately, he is dead at time of recording. <laughs> at time of recording. <laughs> uh, where were we? <laughs> so yeah, so that I, that's kind of the background of Spain at the time, and the movie itself, obviously not historically accurate, but it is it is really good. Um, so it's really neat, and you kind of the whole time you're debating. Is this fantasy world all in the girl's head, or is it a real thing she has stumbled upon? And yeah. ultimately, you can kind of argue each. And right, and as much as you want yeah. to believe, it's like, well, when she uh, again, we're going to spoil Pan's Labyrinth. It's a it's a great movie. Check it out. But you might hit pause if you don't want it spoiled. 
when uh, her stepfather is chasing her into the labyrinth when she's taking her brother into it at the end, and then she's talking to the fawn. Well, we see him not see the fawn. So you're like, oh, right. okay, so this is all in her head and maybe just her coping mechanism. But at the same time, well, how does she get into the room with her brother in the first place? She's like drawing drawing with the magical chalk to make these doors. And how does she get in otherwise without? So it's, it's I think ultimately it's maybe even yeah. un, uh, unknowable on purpose whether or not this magic is real within the within the movie. What, right. What's your opinion on that? I'm not really sure. I I want to lean because we explicitly see a shot from a character's point of view that isn't her and he doesn't see the fawn. That makes me think, oh, that's okay. So now we're seeing someone else's point of view. This is made up. This is in her head. But then the last shot of the movie is after she's dead. So it can't possibly be from her point of view. And it shows the stick bug fairy creature walking on that log. So it's like, okay, so that's like an objective shot of something that she would have seen as, you know, her fantasy and it's showing it as actually being real. So, right. Yeah. I don't know. I think you can, you can argue it either way. Right. And I think, I think the correct answer is that there's not an answer. There's not a correct answer. I think it's probably whatever it means, right. means to you. And, and I, I think I want to, I want to err on the side of believing because at the end of the day, like, I don't like the, I don't like the, the girl dies. Like, I just feel like she went through so much that she had earned, happiness but then you could argue her happiness comes in this fantasy realm which then of course is a big vote for what damn sure better be real then because otherwise this is a really depressing movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah just a few other kind of historical things that come up through the through the film uh, they do show everybody kind of with ration cards and getting in lines for food uh I, I didn't see too much specifically on this but i do think that is yes spain was probably forced into those kinds of straits at the time you saw a lot of bread lines unfortunately i think in the 1940s throughout the world well I mean, that stuff was going on in the United States, too. No, exactly, exactly. I mean, maybe not in 1944, but, like... In the 30s, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they would have been rationing for the war and stuff, but, like, Great Depression breadline type stuff right, was right. definitely happening all over the place. Right, and they have, uh, they read about D-Day in the paper to kind of more spe- get even more specific with the timeline. We know that June, we yeah. must be around June of 1944, specifically, because the we see the Spanish people reading about D-Day. I have a note here that... Mercedes is a badass exclamation mark and I had actually written that down even before she stabs Vidal she is such a cool character like she's yeah. she's the real hero of the movie honestly is Mercedes who is kind of oh, is, yep. is uh, playing both sides and smuggling goods and resources to the rebels uh, while also working for General Vidal and, and her performance is, is outstanding and uh, she's kind of the MVP of the whole movie and Watching her go from being tied up and, you know, stabbing Vidal, and then she walks out of the room and just immediately, like, boom, cool as a cucumber, just walking past all the rest of the guards like she's supposed to be there. And they don't even, there's like, oh, well, I guess muscle let her go. Yeah. As she's just walking. They, 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 they raise her eyebrows for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but she's not like, doesn't run out of the room, like, screaming, like, oh my God, you know? Like, right, because then she knows she's going to get chased or shot. Right, right, right. Right, yeah, it's just uh, it's cool to see that she was able to, you know, keep her composure like that. That's always cool. It's just so frustrating that she didn't kill him when she had the chance. Yeah, I mean, she wounded him a lot. She had him, she had him dead to rights, and then leaves. And I get, right. the, and I get. I mean, yeah. I've, never, I've never been in a situation where I had I had wounded someone, but not enough to kill them, and I had to finish the job. Like I have been in her shoes, but <laughs> at the same time, it's like. <laughs> You know you want this guy dead. You know you're dead if you what you just did gets discovered. Finish the job. You got to finish him off. And I, I, I don't know. So it's 
Uh, I, and I think I guess it felt it felt to me unrealistic. I'm not just saying like, yes, that's what she should have done on a cognitive level. I felt like realistically in that situation, she goes one more. She basically stabbed him like once in the back, once in the gut and sliced his cheek. Like, yeah, she could be fairly confident she hadn't mortally wounded him yet. Just one more stab to the heart, the throat, something. And uh, she instead she walks out when he's basically incapacitated. And uh, man, that, that really disappointed me. Uh, I do like how the, you know it's a story of monsters and all, overseeing all the creatures that Ophelia encounters. But obviously, the real monster of the whole thing is her stepfather. Yes. He is the most evil person in, in the film uh, in, a, in a thing filled with monsters. Another thing that you, know, I was, you kind of mentioned that I always get annoyed when athletic feats are not quite realistic. And uh, did you catch the yes. one in this film? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, wait, hang on. Uh, I'm going to say that it's when Ophelia's being chased by the pale man and she draws the door on the ceiling and basically as a 10-year-old girl does a muscle up through the door and yep. pulls herself up yep. using nothing but her arms. Yep. <laughs> 99% chance she cannot do that without lots of training. She would not have the upper body strength, especially as a, I mean, not girl or boy, honestly, growing up in the 40s. The, the kind of training and athletic background that would take to be able to pull up uh, like you said, a muscle up reaction. Oh, right. you, don't, you don't just pull yourself up, but then shift your body weight to uh, on top of your hands. Yeah, you. She couldn't do that. Like I could probably do that if my life was on the line, and I, there's no way she could do it. Yeah, maybe maybe a you know a ten year old that's like a high level gymnast could maybe do that. No, right, exactly. With with, with training, with training for sure. Yeah, yeah. But this little malnourished girl from 1944 is, isn't doing is not going to be right. able to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, in my, no- in, my, in my notes, I wrote, pull up like that, really hard to do when, when she's running from Mitch McConnell there. <laughs> I mean, that is who that's based on, right? Uh, let's see. <laughs> you know, it's that uh, the Pale Man is actually based on, you know, the painting uh, Jupiter eating his son? Uh, yes, I think so. If, I'm you, picture- if you Google it right now, you'll see it and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So that, it's a combination of that and I guess... Uh, the um, Mitch McConnell. underside of <laughs> the underside of a stingray where it's just a mouth and a nose and like a big white face but no eyes okay that was another thing that Guillermo del Toro based that creature on oh so also worth uh worth mentioning because he's an actor that everyone has seen that they don't know they've seen is Doug Jones yes so yeah. he is the the pale the pale man there who's the fawn right Oh, he's the fawn? Is he the pale man too? Or is he both? Or is he just the fawn? Well, I, I know he's the fawn. I didn't know if he... Hang on, let me... I'd say I know he's the fawn. I don't know if he's the pale man too, although it wouldn't surprise me because he does a lot of like... <laughs> pretty much if you see a bit... Like a, somebody in a, like a big, weird-looking costume in a Guillermo del Toro movie, it's probably Doug Jones. Like he's the... Right. Uh, he's the amphibian guy in Shape of Water. It's right. also Doug Jones. Right, and he's in uh, Hellboy. He's uh, he's in Hellboy. If, actually, he's not a fish-looking guy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he's uh, multiple characters in Hellboy. He's a- okay. Abe Sapien, though, is the one that you're thinking of. Which he, yes, he plays that guy. He is. Oh yeah, he is the pale man. He's he's yeah uh, yeah he's the pale man. Yeah. Yep, he's the pale man, and he's a fun. And he's the uh, he's the only cast member that didn't speak Spanish. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's he's so he's a he's a really good actor, but he's 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 just so good at these physical performances that he tends to always have makeup on or a costume on. Right. Yeah. I, I think I might even read before that you might have like a mime background, which would kind of make sense. 
Uh, he he does at least according to his uh his Wikipedia, it describes him as an actor, contortionist, and mime artist. Okay, well there you go. So yes, one of the most recognizable actors that no one recognizes. <laughs> right, because almost yeah. everyone has seen a Doug Jones character, and then they don't know who so Doug Jones is. He he is to like big costume roles what Andy Circus is to mocap. There you go. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Yes. He's, you've almost certainly seen a movie that has Andy Serkis doing a motion capture role, and you might not know that it's Andy Serkis, but like he's that prolific. Yeah. Because he's that good. Yep. That's a, that's a good comparison. Yep. And yeah, just kind of, so yeah, also, yeah, the, the movie itself, I mean, if you haven't seen it, go see it. I mean, usually when we aren't talking about an actual historical event story, we don't feel the need to detail the plot. It is really good. I actually wrote down here too. I feel like they. I don't know. It made this just because I didn't get what I wanted. I wanted the girl to live. So I wrote that they didn't quite stick the landing. Just because I guess I thought as a viewer, I wasn't completely satisfied. Okay. And I say that recognizing that I can be satisfied with the sad ending. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not saying it's unsatisfying because it was sad. I'm, I, I'm not saying that. But regardless, this is my second time seeing the film. And... I think it's one of the greatest screenplays of all time. Like, this is just a really, really good screenplay. I absolutely love this movie. The screenplay is awesome. All the performances are great. There's, like, the effects are so good, and especially for this movie being made in 2006, which was 15 years ago. That's crazy. Like, right, right. All of the, the, the practical stuff, the uh, CGI and the like costume stuff it all blends together seamlessly and you can't even tell what's what like you can't even tell which parts of the fawn are cgi and which ones are practical effects and which ones are just part of the costume something that's it's actually a an interesting thing in the movie so anytime that they're like doing the battle scenes and you see like all the gunshots and explosions and stuff that's all CGI. They weren't actually allowed to shoot or blow up anything because it was like a big drought and they were afraid they were going to start a forest fire. Oh, huh. So all of that is effects, is computer generated That's effects. crazy. It's one of those things too where I hate to say it's underrated because like it, it is, I mean, it's on IMDb. It's, you know, the 147th highest ranked film of all time. Although we've talked before about how that list mm-hmm. isn't what it used to be, but it's a... 95 slash 91 on Rotten Tomatoes. It was a foreign language film that was nominated for six Academy Awards. So it's it's one of the best foreign films of all time. How many did it win? It won three. So it, yeah, it won cinematography, uh, art direction, makeup. Somehow does not win best foreign language film of the year. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Again, the foreign film oh category. The foreign film category is always a mess. I'm trying to think off the top. We'll see if I can guess it right off the top of my head. I'm going to guess it was uh, uh, the lives of others that year. But let me let me see here. Oh, I win. Um, which is <laughs> which is also a really really good movie. I think Pan's Labyrinth is just kind of a better filmmaking. What's funny too is it's interesting to see. And I'm not a I'm not the biggest Guillermo del Toro fan. Just because there's some people that like everything he does, they like the creatures, and they like even if he makes an average movie, they just like kind of all the creature mm-hmm. stuff and, and effects stuff. So I'm not necessarily into all that stuff, but I do think he's a great filmmaker. And it kind of took Pan's Labyrinth, I think, to elevate him up a tier because before that, he was mm-hmm. just doing all these creature stuff, and Hellboy was surprisingly good for what it was. But I don't think he was necessarily respected 
in the same way that he became yeah. post Pan's Labyrinth. And even Pan's Labyrinth is setting up, honestly, his Shape of Water win probably doesn't happen without Pan's Labyrinth raising his prestige in the industry and maybe how people see right. him as not just a creatures guy. And it's like, oh, no, no, he's a revolutionary generational filmmaker. He's that good at making movies. Well, he can even like elevate what I think would otherwise be like average subject matter to just like one level up. So like Hellboy, Great directed by anybody else, is just a normal comic book movie. But when Guillermo del Toro does it, it's really good. Same thing with like Pacific Rim. You know, it's like, oh, it's a run of the mill, like monsters beating up giant robots movie. But it just is just a little bit better than it has any right to be because Guillermo del Toro is directing it. Okay, that's fair. And I actually have not seen that one. The first one actually does have decent reviews. Second one, not so much, but... Oh, the second one's the second one's trash. Okay, but he okay. didn't direct that one. Gotcha. He is directing a, a a new Pinocchio movie that comes out next year, though, on Netflix. So that might be pretty good. Oh, interesting. And again, he definitely gets uh, into his creatures and special effects, but again, in a practical way, he's not. Despite mm-hmm. what you said about the explosions, he's not a big CG guy. He likes to do actual makeup and costumes and elaborate stuff. And yes, it's definitely where his interests lie. I mean, similar like a power Peter Jackson, I think, started with with similar kinds of things. But yes, he's a, a a great filmmaker. And what's funny too about you see clips of Benicio del Toro or people talking about Benicio del Toro. Apparently, from what I've heard, he's the nicest guy in the world. Like everyone just loves right. to. Are you talking about Guillermo del Toro right now or Benicio? Did del I say Toro? Benicio again? You, you slipped. Yeah, you slipped on the name again, and I didn't know if you were. Oh, if you no, meant to do yeah. That there's. Not. I have no reason to bring up Benicio del Toro <laughs> other than I keep bringing up the wrong dude. Yeah. So yeah. By, by multiple accounts, Guillermo del Toro, nothing against Benicio, but uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro is just like one of the nicest guys in, in, not just in Hollywood, just like in general. So pictures of like, oh, the whole crew is going to do go-karts and it's just, you know, 60-year-old Guillermo del Toro just like, wee! Like he's just, he's just, he's just a big kid and apparently a really, really uh, good dude. So props to him, all his success and his, uh, his great films. This is probably my favorite film of his i would have to say i i I, there was a lot of backlash when shape of water won i thought it was really well made it wasn't my favorite film that year but i did think it was a really masterfully made film so i didn't really buy into a lot of the hate but uh pan's labyrinth is i it's it's legit it is legit i haven't seen i haven't seen all of his stuff um i felt the same way about shape of water like it was a well-made movie but i think that pan's labyrinth is better Pacific Rim is average. Hellboy is average. He definitely elevates those movies, but they're they're fine. Same with like Blade Two. I have heard that his first movie, Chronos, is actually really good. Um, I've just never seen it. Oh wow! And it's a ninety-one on Rotten Tomatoes. Y'all have to check that out. Of the ones that I've seen, Pan's Labyrinth is my favorite as well. And because this is a Halloween episode, uh, I think we do have to highlight that there are some like really cool like violence stuff that happens in this movie <laughs> there are, there are some really cool violent stuff that happens <laughs> <laughs> like the guy that gets beat up with the glass bottle that's like i've never seen anything like that oh in a right movie. yeah yeah when uh when vidal gets shot in the face at the end and just his one eye rolls back that's super cool oh i didn't even catch that okay all of the stuff that has to do with his mouth getting cut, like ugh, so when he like drinks the drinks the alcohol and it like comes out through the <laughs> through the banders that he has, like it's so cool and so well done. And it's like, oh man, like I've never seen anything like this, and it's just 
it's a good it's a good Halloween movie. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Even if you have seen it, go check it out again. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Now, actually, it was. It's on Netflix, I think. Right? Was isn't it available on Netflix right now? Yeah. So, uh, it is on Netflix, it, hey, if yep. you're if you're listening to this on Halloween, make that your Halloween movie tonight. Pan's Labyrinth and uh, <laughs> and uh, regular violence aside, yeah, the, the creatures themselves, like when she has to oh, trick yes. trick the toad, the giant toad. She has to climb into this tree and she has to trick the giant toad into eating this thing, and then it like belches out all this stuff plus the key that she needs and. And little right. things like that, and just uh, again the pale man, Mitch McConnell, with the dining room table there, <laughs> and uh, how the fairies are trying to get her not to eat stuff. It's it's actually such a rich fantasy world that she stumbles into that I was trying to research what it was based on, and I just think it's stuff Guillermo made up. I don't. It's yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a little bit based on Alice in Wonderland, but like all of the creatures and stuff is it's all whole cloth made up by Guillermo yeah, del Toro yeah. for this movie. It's not like. It's not like he has some source material or some right. legend that he's basing this stuff on. Like he made this up out of his head. Right. The dude is is on another level. Yeah, he's brilliant. And I I would love to see, and then maybe someone has, if someone has spelled this out. Like I want to see the full mythology of this that Ophelia gets tied into. Like what's mm. I, I'd love to feel see the actual world. And you're right, it is kind of a, just a dark Alice in Wonderland. And I did see reviews calling it Alice in Wonderland for adults because it is kind of very much that. Yeah, great film. Great film. So yes, uh, hope you're having a good Halloween, and we are in the middle of our tournament, so let's see, just a couple days, we will uh, have our episode on Genghis Khan versus Henry VII in the middle of our tournament, so happy Halloween, and see you later.